Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Hello, it's a pleasure to be able to contribute to this AKC series on spirituality and the body. My name is Daniel Hayter and I'm a PhD student here at King's in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies. And I'm also a trainee pastor at a church in Peterborough. And so what I'm going to be talking about today is uh, hugely important to me, both personally as a Christian uh, and also as a Christian leader, but also from an academic point of view. And so hopefully I can communicate some of the interest academically, but also help you understand that what we're going to be talking about today is something that has actually provided hope for millions of Christians worldwide for the last 2000 years. And the title of today's lecture is The Resurrection of the Body. The Resurrection of the Body. And I'd like to start by asking you a question. I'd like to ask you what pops into your mind when I ask, what is Christian hope? What is Christian hope? And now you may have a whole host of ideas pop into your mind when I ask that, but in all likelihood, a number of you will probably immediately have a picture of the idea of going to heaven. And the chances are that might may have been a picture that didn't really involve bodies, uh, that uh, involved something that was very much uh, disembodied. And it's actually quite common, I think, for uh, people to think that the hope for Christians after death is something that doesn't involve the body, but instead involves the soul living in heaven forever. And I think that's quite a common way that people can often think about Christian hope. And so it can be, I think, common to think of Christianity as a faith which doesn't have a particularly strong interest in the body. And part of the reason for that is I think that people often think that eternal life for Christians is something that doesn't involve a body. And so the body is not really seen as a particularly important thing in Christian spirituality. But actually, when we look at the earliest Christian writings, which are contained in what we now have as the New Testament, and so we're talking about first century of the common era, really, uh, we don't find the idea that the body doesn't matter. That's not what we find. In fact, we find that the body really does matter. And one of the reasons that the body really does matter is that early Christians believe that one day God would resurrect them and raise their bodies to everlasting and embodied life. And so to give you an example of this, one of the early Christian leaders, the Apostle Paul, uh, wrote this in a letter to a church in a Greek city called Corinth. He's writing in around about 53 to 54 uh, of the common era. And I think what he writes shows us that the body really does matter to early Christians. And we're going to see one of the reasons why the body really matters. Now, Paul is writing to this church and at this particular point in the letter, he's dealing with the, the question of Christian sexual ethics. And so that's partly what we're going to be reading here. But I'd like you to see if you can notice one of the reasons that Paul thinks that what uh, the, the body really matters. So Paul says this in the letter to the Corinthians, first letter to the Corinthians. He says the body is not meant for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? 
and that you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, there's a lot too much going on in that passage to really explain everything. As I said, Paul is talking about um, Christian sexual ethics, and he seems to be aware that there are a number of people in this predominantly uh, Greek church. So most of the people in that particular church would have come from a Greek background. And a lot of them thought that what they did with their bodies didn't really matter. It didn't really matter what they did with their bodies. And Paul disagrees. He tells the church that as Christians, it's important to glorify or honour God in our bodies. But I want you to notice one of the reasons that Paul thinks that what someone does with their body really matters. And although he's got uh, sexual ethics in view in this particular moment, he would apply the same idea in a lot of different situations. I want you to notice what he says. He says the body is not meant for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. What Christians do with their body matters, Paul explains, because one day God will raise dead believers' bodies. And this is something that is quite different to the way that most people might immediately think of the idea of Christian eternal life or Christian hope. What we encounter when we look at early Christianity, though, is a faith where resurrection of the body means that the body really matters. And so Christianity is a faith where the body is something that is incredibly important. And so this is what we're going to explore in this lecture. So as part of this series on spirituality and the and the body, uh, we're going to be asking the question, what did early Christians believe about the resurrection of the body? What implications did that have for the way that they thought about the body? And are there any implications for us nowadays? So predominantly, we're going to be doing some historical work, looking at early Christian sources and some early Jewish sources as well. But we're also going to be asking towards the end, does this have any implications for us 2000 years on? So let's look at the historical side of things first. And the way we're going to do it is this. We need to recognise that the earliest Christians were all Jewish. The very earliest Christians were all Jews and they believed that Jesus of Nazareth was the Jewish Messiah. They believed believed that he was the king of Israel that was predicted in the Hebrew scriptures. And so Christianity didn't begin as a new world religion. It very much began as a movement within the broader context of Judaism. And so when we're trying to think through what did early Christians believe about the resurrection of the body... It's helpful to realise that this wasn't a new, uniquely Christian belief. The idea of resurrection was actually something that was present in a number of uh, Jewish circles at the time of Jesus. And so when we're thinking about this topic, it's helpful to quickly look at what different groups of Jews believed about eternal life and future hope in the lead up to the time of Jesus so that we can get a sense of the context within which early Christianity, Christian belief about resurrection group. So let's look at a few different views that uh, different groups of early Jews held. One of those views is the idea that actually there was no future hope to speak of. It would, a number of Jews at the time of Jesus and in the lead up to the time of Jesus thought that there was nothing really to be expected after death. And um, this might sound surprising, but I think it's important to highlight the fact that it would be a mistake to think that all Jews around about the time of Jesus believed the same things about life after death. 
Um, in fact, that's just not the picture that we get. We get quite a varied view and some groups of Jews at the time of Jesus and beforehand believed that there wasn't really such a thing as life after death. And one of those groups that believed that was a, a sect within Judaism or a group within Judaism called the Sadducees. Let's quickly read something that uh, the first century Jewish historian Josephus wrote about the Sadducees. He writes this, the doctrine of the Sadducees is this, that souls die with their bodies. In other words, the Sadducees didn't believe that there was any such thing really as life after death. The body and the soul die at the same time you cease to exist. And that's something that a number of uh, groups of Jewish believers at the time would believe. And very often their way of speaking about the idea of immortality was not so much that you as a person would exist after your death, but instead they focused on the idea of your reputation or your renown or your fame uh, continuing after your death. So this is something that the uh, the second century BCE writer uh, Ben Sirach seems to believe. Um, he writes this, the human body is a fleeting thing, but a virtuous name will never be blotted out. So again, this is a Jewish writer who, like the Sadducees, didn't believe that there was really such a thing as life after death. And so for him, the focus really was, have you got a famous name? Have you got a reputable uh, name? Have you got a good reputation? That's what counts as immortality. It's people remembering who you were. So there was a whole number of Jewish people who didn't believe in life after death at all. Uh, other groups of Jews did believe in some kind of life after death. But it wasn't really an existence uh, of eternal life that would involve the body in any way. Let's have a look at uh, one example from a, a, a early Jewish philosopher, first century um, of the common era, and his name was Philo of Alexandria. And those of you who are familiar perhaps with Greek views of life after death and Greek views of eternal life may notice how influenced uh, this particular Jewish philosopher was by particular Greek uh, ways of thinking. For Philo and for many other Jews, what really uh, counted was not so much the body, but actually the idea that you would continue, hopefully in some disembodied state for the whole of uh, the whole of eternity. And so, and for Philo, it was through studying genuine philosophy that you could prepare your soul, the immaterial part of your body, to exist in a disembodied afterlife. He writes this in one of his writings. This is one example among many others that I could give. He says, these last then are the souls of those who have given themselves to genuine philosophy, who from first to last study to die to the life in the body, that a higher existence, immortal and incorporeal, in the presence of him who is himself immortal and uncreated may be their portion. In other words, the ideal for Philo was an eternal existence after death, which was disembodied. And many other Jews of the time believed the same thing, although they might not quite have been as influenced by Greek philosophy as Philo would have been. They nonetheless believed that the hope for righteous Jews was a disembodied everlasting life. The body was something that wouldn't continue into the eternal future. So those are two views. One view was that there was no real such thing as life after death. Another view was the idea that there was such a thing as life after death and eternal life, but it didn't really involve the body. But then finally, a large number of Jewish groups, no, by no means the majority, but an, a large number by the time of Jesus believed that the hope of the righteous 
was resurrection. Now, to be fair, uh, this wasn't quite the same thing as life after death. So having said that I'm talking about life after death, resurrection was actually something slightly different. Resurrection was the idea that in the future at some point, God would physically raise or bodily raise his people from the dead. Now, a number of Jews who believed that God would eventually raise the dead amongst his people still believed in life after death. They believed that when you died, your soul or the, the immaterial part of you uh, continued to exist. But what they believed crucially was that at some point in the future, God would reunite the soul and the body and would resurrect the righteous to eternal embodied life. And that's really what we mean by, by resurrection. And tracing exactly how this idea of resurrection emerged isn't particularly easy. It's hard to find the, the background, the way that it emerged. There are very, very few places in the Hebrew scriptures um, or the Christian Old Testament where resurrection is really mentioned. Um, but what is clear is that by the time of Jesus, a large number of Jews believed that one day God would resurrect his people and not simply leave them in a disembodied afterlife. But that didn't mean that everyone who believed in resurrection amongst early Jews agreed on the details. Far from it. In fact, uh, the idea of resurrection seemed to allow different groups to, uh, to think through what is it that the resurrected body might actually look like? And they came to quite different conclusions. Uh, for some people, the resurrected body would actually be pretty much exactly the same as the body that died, but presumably reconstructed if I don't know limbs had fallen off and there'd been decay and one example of this way of thinking comes from the book of second Maccabees and you can read this uh, for yourself you can read the whole account for yourself if you um, if you get a bible that has the apocrypha in it it's contained within that collection of writings called the apocrypha between the Christian Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament and in chapter 7 of second Maccabees there's a really graphic description of the torture and execution of seven Jewish brothers who refused to give up Jewish practices. Now, there was a particularly brutal persecution of the Jews in the second century BC by the Syrian Greeks. Uh, they were known as the Seleucids, and under their king Antiochus IV, there was a decree that prohibited Jews to practice Jewish customs, such as circumcision or the food laws. And when a number of Jews resisted this particular edict, it led to an intense persecution. And 2nd Maccabees is one of the, the books, uh, the early Jewish books, that describes this particular period of persecution. And it describes it in a very stylized way. So in, in chapter 7 of 2nd Maccabees, where we do find this account of the torture and execution of seven Jewish brothers who refuse to give up on Jewish customs, it's a very stylized account. And so each of the brothers gives a speech before they're killed. And what is important for our sakes is that a number of them mention the fact that they're willing to be killed and tortured and even mutilated because they believe that one day God will resurrect them. And what is pretty clear from what they say is that they believe that it's pretty much the same body that is going to come out of the grave as the one that went in, but presumably with missing limbs put back on. So let's read what one of the brothers says to the tyrant who's responsible for ordering their torture. After him, after the second brother, that is, the third was the victim of their sport. When it was demanded, he quickly put out his tongue and stretched forth his hands and said nobly, I got these from heaven and because of his laws, I disdain them. And from him, I hope to get them back again. 
Now, it's a disturbing account to read. If you read the whole thing, it's pretty grim. He's about to be dismembered. He's about to lose his tongue and lose his hands uh, in this process of torture and execution. But notice that he says, I hope to get them back again. And he's talking about his limb and his limbs and his tongues. So this is an example of, of an early Jewish writer who seemed to believe that the body that was raised when eventually God would raise the righteous of his people in the future at some point, this Jewish author seemed to believe that the body that was raised was pretty much the same, very similar to the body that died in the first place. So that would be one extreme. On the other extreme, there are Jewish writings uh, which seem to envisage resurrection uh, in, of the body and to see the body in a much more transformed way. Uh, that they would believe that there would be a huge transformation of the body. And one of those writings, and we're going to look at an excerpt, was uh, from a write, an early Jewish writing from the first century of the Common Era, about written after 70, uh, 70 of the Common Era, which is really important because in 70 of the Common Era, the Romans destroyed the Jerusalem temple. And this was a really uh, distressing time and disorienting time for the Jewish people. And so writing after this uh, horrific, disorientating time, the destruction of the temple, the writer of this book called Second Baruch ends up envisaging a future resurrection where it wasn't just the same body really that was raised that would exist into eternity, but a completely transformed body. This is what is written in, in Second Baruch. As for the glory of those who prove to be righteous on account of my law, their splendor will be then be glorified by transformations and the shape of their face will be changed into the light of their beauty so that they may acquire and receive the undying world which is promised to them. And time will no longer make them older, for they will live in the heights of the world and they will be like the angels and equal to the stars and they will be changed into any shape which they wished, from beauty to loveliness, and from light to the splendour of glory. So this is a very different understanding of the resurrection body than we read earlier from the book of Second Maccabees. Uh, the idea of choosing, like in, those, in that final section that we read, the idea of the, the, those who have been raised from the dead will get to choose what kind of shape their body is, is, is fascinating. This is still resurrection. But it's a very different picture of what the body might be like. It's a much more transformed view. And we might wonder whether this was a product of the period of distress that the Jews were going through. Um, that this particular writer is, is suggesting that in order to compensate for the, the horrors of the destruction of the temple, something much more than resurrection back to the same kind of body was needed. It was a transformed resurrection that was needed. Now, those would be the, the two extremes of what the body might look like when it's raised. But most Jewish writings of the time didn't tend to comment on what the body looked like. And so we've only got a few bits of evidence to go on. But it seems that whether or not they mentioned the body explicitly, whether it was transformed or whether it was just the same body, it seems that resurrection for Jewish people at the time implied that a body was raised. It wasn't, it wasn't just a metaphor for talking about disembodied immortality. Now into this mix we, comes Jesus. Jesus was a Jewish man and uh, we need to ask the question, what did Jesus believe about life after death? What did Jesus believe about eternal life? Because uh, presumably what Jesus believed is going to hugely influence what early Christians believed. Now Jesus believed in the resurrection of the body. 
You may have heard of a particular group of Jews called the Pharisees, who are perhaps infamous for the fact that they often end up in arguments with Jesus about a whole host of things. But one of the things that Jesus thoroughly agreed with the Pharisees on was the resurrection. The Pharisees believed that one day God would raise the dead of his people. And they disagreed with a group that we mentioned earlier called the Sadducees. And they would often argue with this group called the Sadducees. And when it came to this debate about resurrection, is resurrection going to happen? Jesus firmly sided with the Pharisees and in fact, fiercely opposed the Sadducees. This is what he says actually to the Sadducees um, who don't believe in resurrection. He has an interesting interaction with them. And uh, all, three of the four Christian gospels report this interaction that Jesus has with the Sadducees concerning resurrection. And they see Jesus siding with the Pharisees. And it's an interesting interaction. We don't have time to look at all of it. But in summary, this is what Jesus says to the Sadducees who don't believe in the fact that God is going to raise the dead one day. Jesus is reported to say this in Mark chapter 12. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses the story about the bush? How God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is God not of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So it's pretty clear from that statement, uh, without going to, into the details of what Jesus means by all of that, it's pretty clear he disagrees with the Sadducees and agrees with the Pharisees that resurrection is something that will happen. And so within this overall complex of Jewish beliefs about the afterlife and eternal life, Jesus fits within the broad group of Jewish, um, of Jew Jewish people who believe that one day God would raise the bodies of his dead people. So that's the early Jewish context within which Christianity emerges. And we need to realize, as I mentioned earlier, that in the first few decades of Christianity, Christians didn't see themselves as breaking away from Judaism in any way. They saw themselves very much as within Judaism. So bearing that in mind and bearing in mind that Jesus fits squarely within the group of Jews that believed that resurrection of the body would happen one day, it makes sense that early Christians would also believe the same thing, that they would believe that there was a future resurrection of the body. And that is exactly what we find in the earliest Christian writings. We find this idea that the eternal hope of believers, the eternal hope of Christians, is not a disembodied state, but seems to be a resurrection of the body in a brand new physical material world really seems to be the emphasis that we get in earliest Christian writings. And so that lines up very much with uh, that particular group of non-Christian Jews that believed in resurrection. But there was an important difference and that important difference is central to Christianity and against all expectations early Christians believed that Jesus of Nazareth who had been crucified, killed by the Romans, had actually been raised from the dead already. They came to believe that Jesus had already experienced what God's people were meant to experience in the future. And so this particular belief in the resurrection of Jesus was so central and so climactic within early Christianity that early Christians shaped what they believed about their own future resurrection around Jesus and around his resurrection. And this is something that the Apostle Paul explains in the same letter that we looked at a little bit earlier in his first letter to the Corinthians. And in this letter, he is 
seeking to help a particular group within the Corinthian church that understand that Jesus's resurrection guaranteed that they would one day be raised. And here's one of the ways that Paul explains it in this first letter to the Corinthians. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first roots of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as in Adam all die, so all will be made alive in Christ, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So the Jewish idea of future bodily resurrection has been thoroughly reworked around Jesus, and we can see that in this small excerpt. And firstly, what Paul does to show how this is shaped around Jesus is he uses an illustration from agriculture to help us understand. He calls Christ I don't know if you noticed in the passage, he calls Christ the first fruits of those who have died. Now, in agriculture, the first fruits refers to the first produce of the crop in a particular field. Uh, but the idea with first fruits is uh, it wasn't expected to be the only crop. It was in, in some sense, it was evidence of the fact that there was more crop to come. You wouldn't be satisfied with just the first fruits. You would want to make sure there's the rest of the harvest and the first fruits in some way guarantees the rest of the harvest. And so Paul explained that Jesus's resurrection was a little bit like the first produce in the field. It guarantees that there's more to come. And so Jesus's resurrection halfway through history, which was something that, uh, that no Jewish person who believed in resurrection would have expected. They expected resurrection to be something that happened in the future to every, all of God's people at once. But this had suddenly happened, uh, early Christians believed, to one person in the middle of history. And Paul is saying that that particular resurrection of Jesus halfway through history guarantees the resurrection of God's people at the end of history. So that's the first way that Paul shows that resurrection is reworked around Jesus. Secondly, he notes that it's specifically those who are followers of Jesus who will experience resurrection. And so again, it's reworked around uh, the Jesus as a person. And thirdly, he explains that the resurrection of the rest of the dead, so Jesus was the first installment, the resurrection of all of the rest of God's people will happen when Jesus returns. Now, the early Christians believe that after his resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven uh, to be seated at the right hand of God the Father. And they believe that one day he would return. And Paul here is emphasizing that it's when Jesus returns that the rest of God's people are raised from the dead. And so bodily resurrection is reshaped around Jesus. But as we're speaking about the spirituality of the body in this lecture series, we're going to ask the question, as we did earlier with the early Jewish views on resurrection, we're going to re-ask the question, what did early Christians think that the resurrected body would be like? And again, Paul helps us in this passage. Um, Paul addresses the question of what does the resurrection body actually look like? What is it that believers will look like when they are raised from the dead? What will their bodies be like? And that's something that Paul answers. And this provides us with some of the earliest Christian evidence of um, what early Christians believed about the resurrection of the body. And we at least get Paul's perspective on the matter here. And um, it seems that some people in the Corinthian church found the idea of a body coming back to life kind of laughable or ridiculous. And so Paul wants to help them understand. And the way he does that is he helps them with an analogy. Um, 
he compares the idea of a body dying and rising again to a seed being planted and a plant growing. He says this, As for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Now, this is a really helpful analogy when we're, think when we're thinking about what does the resurrection body look like, according to Paul. It's a helpful analogy because think about a seed and think about the plant that grows from it. There's continuity between the two. So the plant is of the same kind as the seed. And from a modern scientific point of view, we might say it's got the same genetic material as the seed. So there's continuity, but there's also discontinuity. The plant looks pretty different to the seed. And so Paul seems to be saying that the body that is raised when Jesus returns, when the, when the followers of Jesus are raised from the dead, he seems to be saying that the body that is raised will have an element of continuity with the body that dies, but there will also be a difference. And what is that difference? Well, Paul helps us to understand that by, uh, by pointing out a few contrasts between the body that dies and the body that is raised. And let's read uh, another excerpt from uh, the same letter. Paul is continuing to help explain to this Corinthian church what the body will look like. And he says this a little bit further on. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So Paul uses the idea of sowing and ra raising. So he's, he's keeping the idea of the seed and the plant going on. And he gives us four contrasts between the body that dies and the body which will be raised when Jesus returns. The first of those is perishable versus imperishable. Bodies which haven't been raised to everlasting life yet get sick ill and eventually die. And Paul, in the world that he lived in, without medical care um, of the same kind we have, would have been even more aware of that than we are. But none of these things are true of the body that's raised. It's imperishable. That's the word that Paul uses to describe it. Uh, it's, In other words, it's not raised again as a body that lasts another 70 or 80 or so years. It's being raised as a body that never experiences decay and death again. So that's the first contrast. Perishable versus imperishable. The second contrast is dishonour versus glory. That the most noble and attractive bodies eventually decay and die. They eventually end up having dishonour. But in the resurrection, Paul explains, that won't be the case. Instead, the body that is raised is an honourable, or perhaps we might say a noble body. It doesn't suffer from dishonour or, sh or shameful things to do with the body. So that's the second contrast. The third contrast is weakness versus power. That somehow the body that is raised won't be subject to the same weaknesses as the present body is. That so the, the limitations that are on our present bodies, the limitations that are on the present bodies of the Christians that Paul is writing to, will no longer be there in the age to come when Jesus returns and when they are bodily raised from the dead. That's what Paul's explaining. And then the final contrast is natural versus spiritual. Now, here we've got a little bit more of a difficulty because there's a translation difficulty in this particular text. 
so in the uh, ancient Greek that the New Testament was written in, the, the term natural in Greek is psychikos. And some modern translations of the New Testament have translated that word as physical. And you can see how that is. I mean, the, the words sound quite similar. Um, but I think this is misleading because if you contrast physical and spiritual, it makes it sound like the resurrection body is immaterial, that it's not actually a body. And it might just be a shorthand way of referring to immortality of the soul or disembodied immortality. But actually the word psychikos could literally, it'd be quite clumsy to translate it this way, but you could literally translate it as soulish. And it comes from the Greek word psuche, which means soul. And um, so the idea of soulish could be, and now what does that mean? Well, it's likely that these words soulish and spiritual were not so much referring to what the body was made of, uh, as if one body was made of soul and the other body was made of spirit, but it seems to be more likely to be referring to what the body is, we might say, animated by. That the present body is something which is animated by the human soul. Or an, another way of phrasing that is to say that it's controlled or animated by that which is natural, that which is natural to human beings. But the resurrection body will be fully animated by the spirit of God. And so the body is able to be called spiritual and, and the body that's raised will be suitable to be fully animated, not merely by a human soul, but fully animated by the divine spirit. And that's why Paul draws this contrast between soulish or natural and spiritual. Uh, perhaps to use a, a bit of a crude analogy that might help illustrate this, um, we can think of the, the idea of different cars having different engines. And uh, so imagine a Ford Fiesta has a body or a, I don't know, a chassis, a metal body, which is suitable to the engine that is inside that particular car, not a particularly powerful engine. Whereas a Formula One car will have a body that is suitable for a far more powerful engine. And it seems like there's something vaguely similar to that going on in this particular passage. It's a little bit of a crude illustration, but it hopefully illustrates that a little bit. One New Testament scholar comments on Paul's conception of the body here, and he says this. The point is rather that a resurrection mode of existence characterized by the reversal of decay, splendor, power, and being const constituted by the direction, control, and character of the Holy Spirit would be expected not to be reduced in potential from the physical capacities which biblical traditions value, but enhanced above and beyond them in ways that both assimilate and transcend them. It's a little bit of a mouthful of a quote, but in other words, what this scholar is explaining is that the biblical tradition, which early Christians held to, they held to the biblical tradition of the Hebrew scriptures. The biblical tradition saw the body as a good thing. It was a, a good thing. Material creation was a good thing. And this scholar is explaining, and I think he's right, and I think he's representing Paul accurately, that the resurrection doesn't diminish the importance of the body. In fact, it actually emphasizes it and involves a better improved body. And I think that is what Paul's talking about. I don't think Paul is saying that um, when the dead are raised, when Christ returns, they no longer exist in a body. It's just a spirit. I think what he means is they exist in a body that is 
better and improved and is able to be fully animated by the Spirit of God. So we've got those four contrasts which are quite helpful. We've got the contrast of perishable versus imperishable. We've got the contrast of dishonour versus glory. The contrast of weakness versus power. And the contrast of natural versus spiritual. And so early Christians like a large number of early Jews, believed in the future resurrection of the body. And we've got, obviously, we're looking specifically at Paul there. We don't have time to go into uh, lots of details about other Christians. Um, but early Christians did believe in the resurrection of the body. And it seems that Paul's conception of this body was that it would be a transformed body, not a return just back to the same body that we currently have. But what implications does this have for us 2,000 years on? Now, obviously, from a historical point of view, it's it's quite helpful. I mean, from an academic point of view, it's interesting. I'm mainly interesting, interested in the historical study of early Christianity. And so for me, it's interesting from an academic point of view to think through what did early Christians believe about the resurrection body? How did that impact the way that they acted and the way that they uh, thought through life? So it's interesting from an academic point of view. But I think it's also a helpful corrective to the popular, uh, I think, misunderstanding of the, of the idea of Christian hope as if it's some kind of disembodied eternal, uh, eternal state in some kind of ethereal heaven where there's nothing particularly tangible or almost real about it. The historical Christian hope is much more tangible than that. And so Christians worldwide confess the words of the Nicene Creed that state we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Christian hope, traditional Christian hope, historical Christian hope is an embodied hope. And for those of us who are from a Christian faith, this is hugely encouraging. And it's something that is encouraging for me personally in my own particular Christian faith. But it's also very helpful to me as a Christian leader in terms of helping other Christians as they navigate life in this world. And I'm going to pick up on two particular areas that I think that the idea of the resurrection of the body helps us when we're thinking about um, our own context 2000 years on, um, whether we are interested in what Christians believe or whether we ourselves come from a Christian faith and we want to apply this to our own lives. I think one of the implications that the resurrection of the body has is it emphasises the goodness of the body, the intrinsic goodness of the body and the material world. The, the biblical account of creation reports that when God created the cosmos um, and he created the material world and human beings within it, that his assessment of it was that it was very good. And the idea of the resurrection of the body underlines the fact that creation and the body is a good thing. In the Christian tradition, God's purpose for the world is not to do away with it or throw it in the rubbish dump, could be a crude way of putting it, but is actually to uh, to, to transform and redeem it. And the same goes for, the bo for bodies. And that means that care for the body is a good thing, that there is something actually quite spiritual about what we do with our bodies. The early Christians cared for one another's physical needs. They would often care for the, the poor. They would care for those who have physical needs. They would care for those who are ill. And part of that would be rooted in their understanding of the resurrection of the dead. And that highlighted the, the fact that bodies are not a bad thing. They're not a less than desirable thing. They are something that God intended for this world. And yes, we live in a world at the moment which... Um, is subject to decay and illness and death. 
But that doesn't mean that the body isn't a good thing. And the idea of resurrection of the body underlined that. It underlined the intrinsic goodness of the body. And I think this also has implications if we're thinking more broadly than, than just our own physical bodies, if we're thinking about the environment. So to affirm the goodness of the body and the fact that in resurrection, God affirms the goodness of the body also, I think, suggests that there's a responsibility on us to care well for the material world that we live in. And so questions of climate change and care for the planet and um, the idea of making sure that we are uh, we are caring for this material world, it might not be central to the Christian message. It might not be central to Christian tradition. But nonetheless, I think it's a really important implication of Christian belief that if this material world and our material bodies are good, and I think resurrection affirms that in the Christian tradition, then caring for them is important. We can't just say our bodies don't matter. The material world doesn't matter. Actually caring for the body and caring for material, uh, the material world is an important thing. So that's one area of implication. I think it has implications in terms of emphasising the goodness of the body and care for the material world. But it also, I think, has implications when it comes to suffering and comfort for suffering. For many, the topic of our own bodies uh, might actually be a source of discomfort or even pain. And the Christian message is able to provide comfort for those who, who for whom bodily existence is is fraught with pain it might be due to long-term illness or just the experience of physical pain or the distress of the idea of disconnect with one's own body and after all the apostle paul referred to our present bodies as perishable and so christianity has a framework within which we can make sense of the suffering of this present world and the physical suffering that our bodies go through but the Christian message of resurrection is also able to provide hope and comfort because it proclaims that one day bodily pain and suffering will no longer exist. So the Christian message of resurrection is by implication able to provide a framework within which we understand and are able to sympathise with physical suffering. But it also provides a framework which gives hope and comfort that pain and illness will not always exist. And that helped uh, Christians throughout the centuries. It helped early Christians when they were facing martyrdom and persecution. Uh, let's have a, a look at a quote from a second century bishop called Polycarp. And he was martyred for his faith. And the hope of resurrection provided comfort for him. He says this, or he's reported to have said this uh, when he was praying before his martyrdom. I bless you, God, because you have considered me worthy of this day and hour so that I might receive a place among the number of the martyrs in the cup of your Christ, to the resurrection to eternal life, both of the soul and of body, in the incorruptibility of the Holy Spirit. So the resurrection of the body provided hope for Polycarp and many other Christians who have physically suffered or even been killed for their faith. And so in summary, the Christian message of resurrection means that the body is a deeply spiritual thing. So if we're talking about spirituality and the body, the message of resurrection helps us understand that spirituality and the body are not disconnected, but thoroughly belong together. And so in line with, as we've seen with many non-Christian Jews, early Christians confessed that one day God would resurrect the dead bodies of his people to everlasting life, to a transformed 
everlasting but nonetheless bodily existence. And this means that Christian spirituality is not disembodied spirituality. We are embodied creatures. We exist within bodies and are hugely affected by our bodies. We can't separate our minds from our bodies that easily. And the message of resurrection of the body emphasises that. And as I suggested at the start of this lecture, popular conceptions of Christianity can sometimes view Christianity as having a negative view of the body. But hopefully you can appreciate now that the Christian message of resurrection gives us evidence of a faith in which the body and the spirituality of the body really matter. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.